you don't have a copy of the book Valley of Vision, you should get one. It uh, contains those Puritan prayers uh, collected by a guy named Arthur Bennett. And uh, we don't know really who prayed those prayers. They're all in that book, Valley of Vision. I have been reading that book uh, virtually constantly for probably the last 35 or more years and uh, tremendously enriched my own prayer life. I did want to make a comment or two for you uh, about the election that went on recently. We had a summit here before the election. Uh, it was a great event. There were, I think, about 1,300 folks who came out, and we had a discussion with Dr. Stead, Dr. Fraser, myself, and Soren Kern, who has taught here and uh, is a part of, of my life and our ministry. And we talked a little bit about the issues in the election, and uh, just in case you haven't heard about that, um, it's, it's gone far and wide. It's, it's amazing. I think about 235,000 people viewed it. That, that is the most um, people that have ever connected to anything that's happened here. That's in English. I found out yesterday that it was uh, basically translated into Korean, and um, 270,000 people saw really a reflection of that in some things I said on the subsequent Sunday. 270,000 people saw it in Korean. So um, these kinds of things where we can reflect on a biblical view of uh, current affairs um, are really, really important. And with social media now and with all the ways that it can be communicated, uh, we were able to send a, a biblical perspective virtually around the world. We're really thankful for that thankful for the clarity with which we're able to speak on issues that, that aren't clear to many people. Um, I, I want you to understand a couple of things. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I do want you to understand a few things. Number one, don't, don't overestimate uh, the importance of the presidential election. It, um, it's just part of the world. It's just part of temporal life. It has virtually nothing to do with the kingdom of God. You don't want to make too much of it. Uh, politics, leaders come and go throughout the history of the world. Um, most of them, virtually all of them, uh, in, in the modern world, um, represent the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of God. So this is just the world. This is the world being the world. Um, we have the privilege of living in a country where some people were very smart in the way they put together the Constitution, and the Constitution protects us, uh, protects our rights, and is the longest established functioning republic uh, and democracy in human history, and it was the first one that actually gave freedom of religion, and other freedoms as well. It was defined by freedom. So uh, when you get an election like this, and you have essentially the people who believe in the Constitution, the founding document of this country, you're going in the direction of safety. The Constitution is an ancient document. There have been appointed to the Supreme Court recently people who think the Constitution is flexible and they can change its meaning as time goes on. That, that would be the similar view of liberals in the theological world who think the Bible is some kind of a living document and they can make it mean whatever they think it should mean to any given culture. 
Well, we know where that goes. That goes essentially into heresy and the abandonment of the gospel. If you're going to interpret an ancient document, you have to interpret it in its context. And uh, this country has been moving away from the Constitution. And, uh, in fact, I heard uh, one lady who was recently appointed to the court say, of course, um, of course, a minority woman would interpret the Constitution differently. That, that is a bizarre statement. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. The Constitution is an absolute document, and it is to be interpreted the way the writers intended it to be interpreted. When you start making it mean whatever you want, then everything is up for grabs, and the foundations begin to crumble. So, um, if nothing else, this, this election uh, may lead to a Supreme Court. We hope it leads to a Supreme Court that affirms the Constitution, not because the Constitution is a spiritual document, not because it's a Christian document, but because it's a document that understands that people need to be free. It is not a respecter of persons. It is a, a law and order document. It is a document that guarantees certain freedoms to all people in this nation. It is the protection. When you have people who, who, uh, who want to update the Constitution according to their own contemporary ideologies, that is a very dangerous environment, a very threatening environment, and that's exactly where we were under the last administration, and now it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But don't overestimate this importance. You, you ask yourself, why are all these people marching around and, and protesting? Um, go to Craigslist and you'll find out. They're paid 1500 a week or 1800 a week to do that. They're basically hired. Uh, by certain groups across the country to do what they're doing. Uh, there are lots of universities that are sending their students out today uh, to uh, say that uh, universities are going to become safe spaces um, for anybody who wants to hide, like sanctuary locations, like sanctuary cities. Uh, th this, is, this is in defiance of law and order. We are most safe with people who understand the need for law and order. It has not been abusive in America. It took a while for all the freedoms to emerge. We understand that. There certainly were horrors and days of slavery and things like that. There have been groups who have suffered. I don't know if you know this, but one of the groups that suffered the most in early American history were the Irish when they came to America. That, that's, that's, that's part of this history, but it's the Constitution that has basically eventually brought about the end of all of that. So to have some constitutionalists back in power is a very interesting thing. And another thing, just to kind of help you see it, in the, in the previous administration, there were virtually no Christians. There were virtually none. Because they basically were anti-Christian. Um, they wouldn't say that, but that's kind of the way it was working out. Um, in this new administration, it seems as though there are going to be Christians there, and that kind of influence is good. It doesn't make this a Christian country. It's not just a country like any other. But it does lead us to believe that uh, there are going to be Christians uh, in places of significance who can speak to matters from a biblical God-honoring perspective. I don't think you have anything to fear. When I, I look at these students doing what they're doing, I know some of them are being paid, um, you can go to Craigslist and you can, you can find where you sign up to get paid to do that. Uh, some of them are being manipulated. Some of them are the products of uh, bad parenting, helicopter parenting, uh, where they were basically 
plucked up like as with a helicopter out of any difficulty and never had to face any difficulty. So they didn't learn how to cope with life and that's why they're in a panic. Uh, they lost and, and they're in a major meltdown because they, they've always been winners. Somebody said that there was a group of people going through these protests and weeping and crying and somebody showed up and gave everybody a trophy and they were fine. So, uh, you know, this everybody wins, nobody loses, everybody gets a trophy kind of world that we live in, um, people don't learn how to cope with loss. Um, I was reading an article a week ago, a really interesting article. For about 100 years now, people have been studying why, why people are successful. And the end result of this 100-year study in its final forms, at least up to the current hours, is that about 30% of success is intellectual. 30%. The other 70% is not about how smart you are. It's about how resolute you are. They call it grit. It's the ability, it's the, the ability to stick to something with a clear focus when things go well, when things go bad, against trials and challenges. The successful people in the world have learned how to cope. They don't, they don't, their parents didn't helicopter them out of any difficult situation. Uh, they, they had to face loss, they had to face struggle, they had to face challenge, they had to face defeat, and they learned how to cope with it. This article went on to say that successful people have the ability to focus on a task one day at a time and do it day after day after day after day, year after year after year after year, and eventually they end up having made a difference in the world. Uh, the kind of people that we're seeing running around protesting, whining because they've lost, are not the kind of people who understand life, reality. So you don't want to take any cues from those people again. There, many of them are manipulated and, and paid, and many of them are products of a whining kind of lifestyle that their parents have uh, produced. Having said that, I don't know what the future holds, but I think it's a great adventure. I do know that what happens in the world and what happens in American politics has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will move forward, and in the kingdom of God, God is no respecter of persons, right? There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor bond nor free, rich or poor. We're all one in Christ. Um, the church of Jesus Christ is, is going to be the place where we all come together in a common life and common love. Um, that's not going to change. The Holy Spirit is going to make us one. Uh, all of these kinds of divisive things, all of these racist things, all of these accusations and cries for safe spaces where I can stand somewhere and nobody will ever say anything I don't agree with are, are indications of a whining, in, incapable, unfocused culture with, with no grit. And these kinds of young people really have virtually no hope of success in the future because they can't handle life in even its most simple form. Um, Again, I, I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I, I do know that some of the people just recently put into very significant positions of power have been shepherded by a pastor who's a graduate of the Master Seminary, and uh, he's had an influence in their life, and I, I think there are going to be more Christians involved. Um, that This should speak to a, a greater affinity toward uh, the things of God, and I also think that there's going to be a lessening of Christian persecution, which was ramping up pretty rapidly on a governmental level. Again, um, the Lord is on his throne. 
and I'm, I'm excited to see what the future is going to hold for us. Um, I don't think ma as many babies will be killed. That's really important. That's really important. I read an article by an African-American guy the other day, and he said that 60% of the black babies conceived in New York City will be killed in the womb. Only 40% will see the light of day. Now that's deadly. That's deadly. Uh, to then allow abortion as the, the Democrats wanted it to extend to the full term of babies means more slaughter. And who gets slaughtered most are those who are the least. The idea that um, crime would not be punished is a threat. Um, the LGBTQ agenda would have gone forward with greater force and confused people. Uh, more of the transgender lie and deception. By the way, if you're into the transgender stuff, you're 19 times more likely to kill yourself. You want to talk about real danger? Abortion is real danger. Destruction of the family is real danger. Destruction of marriage is real danger. Destruction of gender is real danger. The elimination of law and order is real danger. Systematic elimination of freedoms uh, until you have some kind of a police state, the attack on Christianity, assault on the church, assault even on us as a Christian institution, those are real dangers. Well, what you're seeing played out in media is an orchestrated effort to cause chaos because um, chaos works for those who want to overturn a culture. So be encouraged. God's on the throne. Be like Isaiah, right? He checked in and God was still on the throne, Isaiah 6, right? So let's, let's see what God's going to do. I'm, 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 uh, I'm excited to see that. Uh, I remember once a few years ago, there was a situation like this in the country, and I got a phone call from uh, one of the president's aides. This was when uh, George Bush was president. And uh, he said, um, this outstanding young guy, uh, who was very close to the president in the White House and was one of his most um, confident uh, advisors. Uh, he said, um, I, I want you to know that uh, the messages you gave on um, the dangers of moralism have circulated throughout the entire White House staff. And uh, we would love for you to come back and we'd love to have you be a part of a, of a discussion and a forum uh, because so many of us are Christians and we need to know how to deal with the political opposition. Um, I went back to Washington, and I met with those people, um, and we had an absolutely wonderful, wonderful talk. They were Christians, and they were trying to navigate the very delicate line uh, between being a Christian and being a Republican. And they, they had basically fallen into the danger of turning the other party into the enemy and vilifying them and attacking them. and So we had some wonderful discussions about the fact that the people who disagree with you politically, the people who want to disrupt America, tear up America, um, they're not the enemy. They're the mission field, right? They're the mission field. So, you know, we, we don't want to do a victory lap at this point. We want to be patient, wait and see what the Lord is doing, but He is on the throne, and this is a choice that God has made. Um, but let's remember that the people, who, uh, the people who make the most effort to damage life and society are not the enemy. They are the mission field. And we want to reach out to them in love. Um, 
I think you're in for a wonderful adventure. Uh, the Lord's purposes will be completed, right? Church, he will build. So it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful few days uh, to see this all sort of come together and then live it out over the next uh, few years. I've been around a long time, seen a lot of presidents come and go. Um, I've never seen this level of, of anger, hostility, and all of that kind of thing. Um, that has been fomenting because it's now become an industry. It's, a, it's an industry. It's a job now. So you, you get paid for doing it, and that creates a lot of this. So um, I know any of your professors would love to discuss these kinds of things with you along the way. But be encouraged. Uh, if I look forward, uh, and, and any view that I might have could pass on to you, I would say I, I see less danger in this world. I see less assault, less persecution on Christianity, more open doors for us, more safety for us, because this group of people has a higher view of law and order, which means they feel strongly about the role of police and the military, and so they're ready to protect us from outside invaders and inside danger as well. This is, this is going to be an interesting opportunity for us to live in this coming era. And I know for most of you young guys and gals, you, um, you haven't known enough of history to have seen such transitions, probably seen only one or so, and this is going to be a great experience for you. All right, I want you to uh, open your Bible if we have a little bit of time left. Um, and while you're opening it to Matthew 26, Matthew 26, we're talking about Christ. Um, when I was very young, I, I was part of an organization occasionally called Youth for Christ. Some of you may remember the name Youth for Christ. It was a national organization, and uh, they held um, youth events. Um, they had basically a Youth for Christ office in most major cities. There was one in the Los Angeles area, probably a lot. There were some in San Diego, and I was pretty involved in Youth for Christ. They held weekend um, gospel events and rallies and all kinds of things for young people. They had clubs in high schools, and um, it was a very, very large national movement called Youth for Christ. Uh, early, early on in my life, there were two men who were very young and very gifted preachers. And they were the shining lights of Youth for Christ. They would travel the country and hold these huge events, huge rallies, and they would preach. Uh, one of them you know very well, Billy Graham. Billy Graham was one of the two, and his history is common knowledge. I think he's uh, about 98 now, and he's still hanging on and about to go to heaven. The other one you don't know. The other one was a man named Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton. Youth for Christ was founded by a guy I know or knew named Tory Johnson, and I, I, I preached for them and for him many, many years ago. Billy Graham and Charles Templeton were his two favorite evangelists, and they were very powerful evangelists. By all accounts, Charles Templeton was the greater preacher. Everyone said that. Everybody recognized that. Billy Graham had a kind of plain spokenness about him, a kind of simple directness about him, but, but Charles Templeton was, was um, almost, um, almost like an actor. He was almost like a, kind of a rock star, we would say, in our day. He was very intelligent, very winsome, 
a very effective, very handsome, um, and extremely articulate. In 1946, going back a long time, um, the National Association of Evangelicals uh, named Charles Templeton the best, the, the person most used by God. I don't know what that means. That's purely superficial, but, you know, I don't know what that award's good for, but uh, anyway, he was called the most used by God. Um, he and Billy Graham were called the gold dust twins because they, they were everywhere preaching in these rallies. Charles Templeton always overshadowed Billy Graham. He was more eloquent. He was more brilliant. He was a polished orator. Charles Templeton and Billy Graham made an evangelistic tour of Europe and together they were in England, Scotland, Ireland, Sweden, and a lot of other places preaching. Um, they weekly were on uh, television, CBS, NBC. Um, they both eventually became pastors for a period of time. Uh, they held these big youth rallies. Charles Templeton actually had the opportunity to preach at Princeton Seminary. And he preached across the country, uh, they said, to as many as 20,000 people nightly. Preached a week at Yale University. Charles Templeton. 1957. He declared himself an agnostic. Rejected Christ. Rejected God. Rejected Scripture. He read Thomas Paine in 10 days, read Voltaire, Bertrand Russell, Robert Ingersoll, David Hume, Alduis Huxley, completely abandoned the faith. He went to Canada and he became a journalist, a successful journalist because he was a very gifted writer, and he wrote a book in 1999 title of the book was Farewell to God. It's a case for atheism. And in that book, he gave his reasons for rejecting Christianity. That was 1957, when he left the ministry. He went to Canada, became the journalist, published his book, and stepped into the eternal blackness of apostasy, blasphemed Christ, and died in unbelief. Are there other preachers like that? There are. I went to college with a guy, played football with him, we were tandem in the backfield, close, very close. We were both headed for the ministry. We used to talk about it. We both headed up a youth group in our churches. And after college, he denied the faith, walked away. I went to seminary with the guy. Seminary. His father was the dean of the seminary. After seminary, he graduated, set up a Buddhist altar in his house. Denied Christ. That leads me to talk to you about two other preachers. Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 is a tale of two men. You know these two men well. 
Both had the most unique privilege and opportunity ever given to a human being. Both were called by Jesus personally. Both answered the call and followed Jesus for the full duration of his ministry for years. Both declared repeatedly their personal devotion to the Lord. Both were personally picked and trained by Jesus for ministry. Both were personally and privately taught by Jesus in his small group. They were taught through precept, proposition, and example. They were taught to know the will of God and the Word of God and to live it and proclaim it. Both saw the miracles of Jesus. Both saw the revelation of His divine nature every day. Every day. And there were so many disclosures of His divine nature that the final verse in the Gospel of John says, if all the things He did were written down, the books of the world couldn't contain them. They both saw all of it. They saw His power over demons, disease, death, nature. Both heard the Lord answer every important question that was ever asked to Him truthfully, clearly, profoundly, perfectly. Both had all their questions answered perfectly. Both were daily confronted with the reality of sin and the need for salvation. Amazingly, both betrayed the Lord Jesus. Both regretted that treasonous act. Both were sorry. One was highly honored in heaven. The other dishonored in hell. What, what a contrast between two men sharing the same experience with Jesus Christ. They couldn't have been more similar in their experience and their opportunity, yet they couldn't have been more different in the end and the outcome. Salvation can't be by works because they both did the same works. Salvation can't be by knowledge because they both had the same knowledge. Because they were both taught the same truth. So what made the eternal difference between Peter and Judas? Very simple. Their attitude toward Jesus Christ. You can talk about Christianity from a lot of angles and a lot of perspectives. But true believers are marked by their attitude toward Jesus Christ. Now, churches are full of, and all Christian institutions have such people, Peter's and Judas's, all hearing the same truth, having the same experience, seeing the same divine grace and power in people's lives, serving together, worshiping together, evangelizing together, ministering together, 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 but they will end up in the two most extremely opposite destinations, heaven and hell. And what makes the difference is their attitude toward Jesus Christ. That's essentially the, the account of Matthew 26. We don't have time to go through the whole chapter, but I do want to show you a bit of the contrast between Judas and Peter. Go down to uh, that 26th chapter, verse 47. 
While he was still speaking, our Lord, in the Garden of Gethsemane, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs. And by the way, one of the twelve, in all four references to Judas, that phrase is there. One of the twelve, to underscore the shocking insidiousness of his life. One of the twelve. One of the twelve. One of the twelve. We know at this time that Satan had already entered Judas. He had entered Judas. See that in John 13. And Judas then went about to do his deed of betrayal. Verse 48, now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one seizing. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, hail rabbi, and kept on kissing him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. It's unthinkable. It's absolutely beyond comprehension. The greatest opportunity that any human being in the history of the world could ever have to spend 24-7, three years with the Son of God. And it comes to this? What happened? Well, Judas was in it for the money, power, personal pride, exaltation. And when it became apparent to him that the thing wasn't going that way, that this, this Jesus, whom obviously was from God, had divine power, was God in human flesh, that didn't matter to him. He wasn't going to deliver the kingdom in that hour because it was clear he was headed toward death. And once Judas realized this thing was going south and he'd wasted three years of his life, he wanted to get as much money as he could out of it, so he sells Jesus 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Trying to recover something for his lost three years. And then down in verse 57, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in. And here we meet Peter. Peter. He shows up in the scene. But go down to verse 65. They determined that Jesus was a blasphemer. They spit on him, slapped him, punched him with their fists. This is the result of Judas' betrayal. If you go down to chapter 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor, now back to Judas. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, 
saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. He threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. They conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed. This is the horrible tragedy of Judas that fulfills Zechariah 11. It's, it refers to Jeremiah because Jeremiah was kind of the whole prophetic book title. Judas, horrible tragedy, hangs himself, is forever damned to hell. The greatest tragedy in human history of wasted opportunity. But, but let me tell you something about Judas. He was greedy. He was a materialist. He was a money lover. He was controlled by Satan. Jesus said he's a devil. He is marked by avarice, greed, motivated by desire for prominence and riches. So strong was Judas' sinful greed that he ignored the truth turned his back on the unmistakable glory of Jesus Christ and went to hell on purpose. The first preacher who went to hell on purpose. He loved himself too much. He respected salva he rejected salvation too easily and resented Jesus too strongly. So let's go back to the other preacher, Peter, go back to verse 20. And you know what's going on there. The whole story of Pilate and all that's happening to Jesus. Uh, again, we get the details. The, verse 30, they spat on him. They beat him on the head. They crucify him in verse 33, take him to the place of the skull to take away his life. That's chapter 27. But backing up a little bit on the story, let's go back to Peter. Back to the Mount of Olives. Uh, verse 30 of 26, when they went out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. All the disciples are represented by that. They're all going to be scattered. They're all going to literally flee. And that, we know, is precisely what happened. They all defected. They all defected. That also fulfills something in Zechariah 13. Verse 32, Jesus said, After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Important statement. Why? Because it demonstrates that their defection is temporary. Right? They're not going to kill themselves. It's a temporary defection. Now let's pick up Peter's part of the story in verse 33. Peter said, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. They overestimated their uh, strength. It's a shocking prediction. It's as evil as Judas's betrayal. It is an outright denial. It happened on three, three separate locations at least six different times. It is a heinous, wicked crime. He is ashamed of Christ. He is so ashamed of Christ that he actually curses, which is to pronounce damnation on himself. Go to verse 69. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. He denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. When he had gone out into the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear. What in the world? And said, I do not know the man. And then the rooster crowed. What does it mean to curse? It means to pronounce damnation on yourself if you're lying. That's how strong his denial was. Unbelievable. But then there's verse 75. When the rooster crowed, Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Judas went out and hanged himself. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Something else happened at that moment. Do you know what it was? Luke twenty-two sixty-one. Jesus looked at Peter, and their eyes met. And when Judas and Jesus' eyes met, Judas boldly kissed Jesus with the hatred of a hypocrite. When Peter and Jesus' eyes met, Peter broke down in genuine tears of repentance. Crushing sadness led Judas to suicide without repentance. Crushing sadness led Peter to restoration with repentance. The vision of Christ meant nothing to Judas. It meant everything to Peter. What is the difference here? Peter loves Jesus. And that becomes the issue in John 21. Peter, do you what? Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. How do you know when someone's a true believer? They love Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, If anyone love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls or constrains us. In the upper room, Thursday night before his crucifixion, Jesus talked a lot about loving him and keeping his commandments. He said the true disciple loves him. Loves him so that he desires to honor him, to fellowship with him, and to obey his word. But let me kind of break away from that for just a few minutes and say this. Sin and guilt, the awareness of sin and guilt, do not produce true repentance. Did you hear that? The awareness of sin and guilt do not produce true repentance. The awareness of sin and guilt could produce suicide, could produce 
um, drunkenness or any other kind of effort to cover up, flee. They might produce remorse, sin and guilt, might produce anxiety, might produce fear, might produce regret, might produce deadly sadness, might produce depression, might produce suicide, but awareness of sin and guilt do not produce true repentance. The whole world is full of guilt. The horror of Judas' sin did not make him repent, and the horror of Peter's sin did not make him repent. The ugliness of your sin does not make you repent. It's not enough to make the sinner repent, savingly. It is enough to make the sinner cry. It is enough to make the sinner kill himself. But the knowledge and awareness of sin and guilt is not enough to make the sinner repent. What makes the sinning, guilt-ridden sinner repent is seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and loving Him. Seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and loving Him. That's why Peter repented. He saw Him and he loved Him. Peter writes about that in 1 Peter 1. Three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He goes on talking about the incredible blessedness of knowing Christ. And then down in verse 8, he says, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. That's the question to ask. Two followers two students, two preachers, indistinguishable to their close friends. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they said, is it I, is it I, is it I? They had no idea. One was a suicide who went to hell. One was a saint who went to heaven. Both betrayed Jesus. Both felt sin and guilt and remorse. One saw Jesus and hated him. The other saw him and loved him. For Judas, Jesus was a disappointment. Judas belonged to Satan. Peter belonged to Christ. Paul puts it this way. Grace, saving grace, be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. It's about loving Christ. Loving Him so much that what was read in that prayer is your experience. You want to replace your sin with Him. He is your love. In 2001, at the age of 86, Charles Templeton died, a blasphemer. As he was dying, he said one thing. He said this, I miss Jesus. And he went to hell. I miss 
Jesus. That's a remorse that will last forever. Know your own heart. Do you love Him? Father, we thank You for Your Word, blessing of it, the warnings in it. Thank You for instructing us again this morning, and particularly on that most noble of all things, to love Christ. Increase our love for Him more and more, we pray, for His glory.